Welcome to this week's episode of Keep It Brief. This past Saturday was Veterans Day, and in order to honor and commemorate the day, we have decided to spend today's episode discussing the holiday and different topics related to it. Our servicemen and women make massive sacrifices to secure our freedoms, so it is only fitting to use this platform to share our gratitude and respect for those sacrifices. Every year, the United States celebrates and honors our veterans on November 11, a national holiday established by Congress in 1954. However, the country has revered our military history on November 11, long before the creation of Veterans Day. Originally known as Armistice Day, the United States commemorated the end of World War I, which was resolved on November 11, 1918. It wasn't until 1954, after both World War II and the Korean War, that the U.S. Congress voted to replace the word armistice with veterans, creating a holiday we know today. Veterans Day took a hiatus in 1968 when the Uniform Holiday Monday Act was passed, consolidating four national holidays to the fourth Monday in October in order to give federal employees a three-day weekend. In true American fashion, multiple states refused to adopt the change, and President Gerald R. Ford reinstated Veterans Day to its original glory in 1975 when he passed a law returning the holiday to its own date of November 11. In 2001, U.S. Resolution 143 declared the entire week National Veterans Awareness Week and accentuates the need for education in K-12 schools on the sacrifices and contributions of veterans throughout American history. A common misconception is not understanding the difference between Veterans Day and Memorial Day. While both honor our veterans, the difference is that Memorial Day is dedicated to fallen soldiers while Veterans Day honors the living and the dead. Here's a letter from President Eisenhower to Harvey V. Higley from 1954, detailing the creation of the Veterans Day National Committee and his designation of Mr. Higley as the chairman. Dear Mr. Higley, I have today signed a proclamation calling upon all of our citizens to observe Thursday, November 11, 1954 as Veterans Day. It is my earnest hope that all veterans, their organizations, and the entire citizenry will join hands to ensure the proper and widespread observation of this day. With the thought that it will be the most helpful to coordinate the planning, I am suggesting the formation of a Veterans Day National Committee. In view of your great personal interest as well as your official responsibilities, I have designated you to serve as chairman. You may include in the committee membership such other persons as you desire to select, and I am requesting the heads of all departments and agencies of the executive branch to assist the committee in its work in every way possible. I have every confidence that our nation will respond wholeheartedly in the appropriate observance of Veterans Day 1954. Sincerely, Dwight D. Eisenhower. There are so many ways that we can commemorate the servicemen and women who have answered the country's call on our behalf. In keeping with an adage that articulates, in my opinion, the highest and truest aim of journalism, in this episode, we hope to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Marine Corps General John Kelly, among other things, was the White House Chief of Staff under Trump. I'm going to read an excerpt of a speech he delivered to the Semper Fi Society of St. Louis on November 13, 2010, just four days after the death of his own Marine son in Afghanistan. General Kelly talks about two Marines from two infantry battalions that were switching out on April 22, 2008, in Ramadi, Iraq, while he was the commander of all U.S. and Iraqi forces. One battalion was closing out as the other was preparing to take its place. 
Two Marines, one from each battalion, were assuming the watch at the entrance gate of an outpost. This post contained a makeshift barracks that housed 50 Marines and 100 Iraqi police, our allies in the fight against terrorists in Ramadi, at the time known as the most dangerous city on earth and owned by Al-Qaeda. The Marines, Corporal Jonathan Yale and Lance Corporal Jordan Harder, 22 and 20 respectively, were from very different walks of life. The following are General Kelly's words. Yale was a dirt-poor, mixed-race kid from Virginia with a wife, a mother, and a sister who all lived with him and he supported. He did this on a yearly salary of less than $23,000. Harder, on the other hand, was a middle-class white kid from Long Island. They were from two completely different worlds. Had they not joined the Marines, they would have never met each other or understood that multiple Americas exist simultaneously depending on one's race, ethnicity, religious affiliation, education level, economic status, or where you might have been born. But they were Marines, combat Marines, forged in the same crucible, and because of this bond, they were brothers as close or closer than if they were born of the same woman. The mission orders they received from their sergeant squad leader, I'm sure, went something like this. Okay, take charge of this post and let no unauthorized personnel or vehicles pass. You clear? I'm also sure Yale and Harder rolled their eyes and said in unison something like, yes, sergeant, with just enough attitude that made the point without saying the words, no kidding, sweetheart, we know what we're doing. Then they relieved two other Marines on watch and took up their posts at the entry control point of Joint Security Station Nasser in the Sophia section of Ramadi, Al Anbar, Iraq. A few minutes later, a large blue truck rolled down the alleyway perhaps 60 to 70 yards in length, and sped its way through the serpentine concrete jersey walls. The truck stopped just short of where the two were posted and detonated, killing them both. 24 brick masonry houses were damaged or destroyed. A mosque 100 yards away collapsed. The truck's engine came to rest 200 yards away, knocking down most of a house before it stopped. Our explosive experts reckon the blast was caused by 2,000 pounds of explosives. Because these two young infantrymen did not have it in their DNA to run from danger, they saved 150 of their Iraqi and American brothers in arms. When I read the situation report a few hours after it happened, I called the regimental commander for details. Something about this struck me as different. We expect Marines, regardless of rank or MOS, to stand their ground and do their duty, and even die in the process if that's what the mission takes. But this just seemed different. The regimental commander had just returned from the site, and he agreed, but reported that there were no American witnesses to the event, just Iraqi police. If there was any chance of finding out what actually happened, and then to decorate the two Marines to acknowledge their bravery, I'd have to do it, because a combat award requires two eyewitnesses, and we figured the bureaucrats back in Washington would never buy Iraqi statements. If it had any chance at all, it had to come under the signature of a general officer. I traveled to Ramadi the next day and spoke individually to a half-dozen Iraqi police, all of whom told the same story. They all said, we knew immediately what was going on as soon as the two Marines began firing. The Iraqi police related that some of them also fired and then ran for safety just prior to the explosion. All survived. Many were injured, some seriously. One of the Iraqis elaborated, and with tears welling up in his eyes, he said, they'd run like any normal man would to save his life. What he didn't know until then, and what he learned in that very instant, was that Marines are not normal. 
Choking past the emotion, he said, Sir, in the name of God, no sane man would have stood there and done what they did. They saved us all. What we didn't know at the time, and I only learned after I submitted both Yale and Harder for posthumous Navy crosses, was that one of our security cameras recorded some of the attack. It happened exactly as the Iraqis described it. It took exactly six seconds from when the truck entered the alley until it detonated. You can watch the last six seconds of their young lives. I suppose it took about a second for the two Marines to separately come to the same conclusion about what was going on once the truck came into their view at the far end of the alley. No time to talk it over or call the sergeant to ask what they should do. Only enough time to take half an instant and think about what the sergeant told them to do only a few minutes before. Let no unauthorized person or vehicles pass. It took maybe another two seconds for them to present their weapons, take aim, and open up. By this time, the truck was halfway through the barriers and gaining speed. Here, the recording shows a number of Iraqi police, some of whom had fired their AKs, now scattering like normal and rational men that they were, some running right past the Marines, who had three seconds left to live. For about two seconds more, the recording shows the Marines firing their weapons nonstop. The truck's windshield explodes into shards of glass as their rounds take it apart and tear into the body of the man trying to get past them to kill their brothers, American and Iraqi, bedded down in the barracks, totally unaware that their lives at that moment depended entirely on two Marines standing their ground. Yale and Harder never hesitated. By all reports and by the recording, they never stepped back. They never even shifted their weight. With their feet spread shoulder-width apart, they leaned into the danger, firing as fast as they could. They had only one second left to live, and I think they knew. The truck explodes. The camera goes blank. Two young men go to their god. Six seconds. Not enough time to think about their families, their country, their flag, or about their lives or their deaths, but more than enough time for two very brave young men to do their duty. Those are the kind of people who are on watch all over the world tonight for you. And as amazing as this selfless act of sacrifice may seem, it is the norm. In all the years I have been both enlisted and an officer of Marines, I have praised them and I have chewed them out. I have promoted them and unceremoniously disciplined them. I have hung decorations on them and court-martialed them. I have visited them mangled and broken in military hospitals around the country, in lonely defensive positions across Iraq, and in brigs. I have known thousands of them over nearly 40 years, and I can tell you without hesitation or qualification that I never met one who would have run from his post that morning, who would have done anything other than to have stood there and died. I have the name of the most recent hero killed in Afghanistan a few hours ago, but I cannot share with you his name because a Marine officer and Navy chaplain have not yet executed their honor duty of notifying the next of kin. That family, right now, somewhere in America, is in the final moments of blissful ignorance before their entire lives change forever. I know God will help them bear this inconceivable burden, a burden I am told by those who know that never goes away or even gets lighter, and help them find comfort in the fact that their son was doing exactly what he wanted to do, was doing it with the finest men on this earth and for a cause that meant more to him than his life. The reality, however, is that it doesn't matter if we are comforted or if we accept it or not. It only matters that he did. We Marines believe that God gave America the greatest gift he could bestow on man while he lives on this earth, freedom. 
We also believe that he gave us another gift nearly as precious, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, coast guardsmen, and marines, to safeguard the gift and guarantee no force on this earth can ever steal it away. Rest assured that our America, this experiment in democracy begun over two centuries ago, will forever remain the land of the free and home of the brave, so long as we never run out of tough young Americans who are willing to look beyond their own self-interest and comfortable lives and go into the darkest and most dangerous places on earth to hunt down and kill those who would do us harm. God bless America and Semper Fidelis. Thank you for celebrating Veterans Day with us here on Keep It Brief on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Every year since 1919, there has been a ceremony to mark the end of the Great War. In 1921, the Unknown Soldier was buried in Arlington National Cemetery in the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, one of our nation's historic monuments erected to memorialize our veterans. There is an annual ceremonial wreath laying in which the president lays a wreath on the tomb, followed by the sounding of taps, a tradition dating back to 1921. Taps, our national song of remembrance, has become interwoven into American culture. The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is the symbolic memorial grave for all service members who have not been identified. The north and south panels of the tomb sarcophagus are decorated with a total of six inverted wreaths, each representing a major campaign of World War I. The west panel, facing the amphitheater, features the inscription, Here rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. On the east panel, facing the Capitol, three Greek figures have been sculpted. On the left stands peace, holding a dove in one hand. On the right stands valor, bearing a broken sword in his hands. In the center stands victory, holding hands with peace while extending an olive branch to valor. Beginning on April 6, 1948, the tomb of the unknown soldier has been guarded 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year regardless of weather. Thank you again for celebrating Veterans Day with us here on Keep It Brief on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Now we are going to play an excerpt from a speech President Reagan gave at the 1985 Veterans Day wreath-laying ceremony. A few moments ago, I placed a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier. And as I stepped back and stood during the moment of silence that followed, I said a small prayer. And it occurred to me that each of my predecessors has had a similar moment, and I wondered if our prayers weren't very much the same, if not identical. We celebrate Veterans Day on the anniversary of the armistice that ended World War I, the armistice that began on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. And I wonder, in fact, if all Americans' prayers aren't the same as those I mentioned a moment ago. The timing of this holiday is quite deliberate in terms of historical fact, but somehow it always seems quite fitting to me that this day comes deep in autumn when the colors are muted and the days seem to invite contemplation. We are gathered at the National Cemetery, which provides a final resting place for the heroes who have defended our country since the Civil War. This amphitheater, this place for speeches, is more central to the cemetery than at first might seem apparent. For all we can ever do for our heroes is remember them and remember what they did, and memories are transmitted through words. 
Sometime back, I received, in the name of our country, the bodies of four Marines who had died while on active duty. I said then that there is a special sadness that accompanies the death of a serviceman, for we're never quite good enough to them. Not really, we can't be, because what they gave us is beyond our powers to repay. And so when a serviceman dies, it's a tear in the fabric, a break in the hole, and all we can do is remember. It is, in a way, an odd thing to honor those who died in defense of our country, in defense of us, in wars far away. The imagination plays a trick. We see these soldiers in our mind as old and wise. We see them as something like the founding fathers, grave and gray-haired. But most of them were boys when they died, and they gave up two lives, the one they were living and the one they would have lived. When they died, they gave up their chance to be husbands and fathers and grandfathers. They gave up their chance to be revered old men. They gave up everything for our country, for us. And all we can do is remember. There's always someone who is remembering for us. No matter what time of year it is or what time of day, there are always people who come to this cemetery, leave a flag or a flower or a little rock on a headstone. And they stop and bow their heads and communicate what they wished to communicate. They say, hello, Johnny, or hello, Bob. We still think of you. You're still with us. We never got over you, and we pray for you still, and we'll see you again. We'll all meet again. In a way, they represent us, these relatives and friends, and they speak for us as they walk among the headstones and remember. It's not so hard to summon memory, but it's hard to recapture meaning, and the living have a responsibility to remember the conditions that led to the wars in which our heroes died. Perhaps we can start by remembering this, that all of those who died for us and our country were, in one way or another, victims of a peace process that failed, victims of a decision to forget certain things, to forget, for instance, that the surest way to keep a peace going is to stay strong. Weakness, after all, is a temptation. It tempts the pugnacious to assert themselves. But strength is a declaration that cannot be misunderstood. Aside from the huge physical sacrifices made by servicemen and women, the mental health statistics for veterans are sobering. According to one of the largest studies done on mental health risk among U.S. military, which was conducted by a Harvard Medical School professor, the rate of major depression among service members was five times as high as civilians and the rate of PTSD was nearly 15 times higher. Veterans with PTSD also have higher psychiatric comorbidity rates and higher rates of suicide. Nearly 20% of service members returning from Iraq and Afghanistan reported probable traumatic brain injuries, according to a study from the RAND Center for Military Health Research Policy. One recent study conducted at Boston University determined that more than 30,000 active duty and veterans of post-9-11 wars have died by suicide over the last 20 years. 
That's more than four times the number of service members killed in war operations during that time. Thank you for listening to our Veterans Day special here on Keep It Brief. We appreciate you taking the time to pause with us for a moment and reflect on the solemnity of this day. We hope that we can all continue to remember and offer up our gratitude, not just on this day or this week, but every day, lest we forget. Instead of our normal outro, we will be playing taps to honor all of our veterans, living and deceased, in honor of the men and women who swore an oath, an oath in which they stated their willingness to make the ultimate sacrifice if necessary, in order to protect the freedom of people who would never know their names.